We know that Shakespeare has the perfect lines to accompany us into battle or out onto the stormy heath, but does he have the right stuff to take us on a daily commute or a trip to the grocery store? From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. One of the biggest challenges for anyone teaching Shakespeare is making the plays feel relevant. We tend to remember the big set pieces and the famous speeches, but what about the poetry that speaks to everyday life? If you focused on those lines, how would that change your experience of reading Shakespeare? David Crystal is a linguist who has published over 100 books. Ben Crystal is David's son and actor. Together, they've co-authored several books on Shakespeare's language, including the Oxford Illustrated Shakespeare Dictionary, Shakespeare's Words, a Glossary and Language Companion, and the Oxford Dictionary of Original Shakespearean Pronunciation. The last time the Crystals appeared on this show, in 2014, they discussed their work on Original Pronunciation, or OP. That's the study of the way English might have sounded in Shakespeare's day. Performing Shakespeare in OP can uncover meanings and puns otherwise lost in modern pronunciation. For their most recent book, Ben and David combed through all of Shakespeare to find the lines that spoke to everyday concerns. Love, loss, money, nature, children, arguments, celebrations. They found thousands of quotable lines that could apply to daily life in any century. Then they grouped the lines by seasonal theme and chose one for each day of the year. For example, the quotation for the day I'm recording this comes from All's Well That Ends Well. It laments the loss of mystery in our modern age. They say miracles are past and we have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. The Crystal's new book is called Everyday Shakespeare, Lines for Life, and it can be used either as a quotation reference or as a daily reading practice. Here's Ben and David Crystal in conversation with Barbara Bogave. Do you both read Shakespeare every day, like a practice, like yoga or meditation? And I'll throw that to you, David. Yeah, well, not con- not consciously. I don't have a set time, but it's unbelievable the number of times in the day when little fragments of Shakespeare come into the head and out they pop and they make some you know, contribution to the conversation. doesn't matter who I'm talking to and whether they recognize it, Shakespeare or not, I'm not entirely sure. But when talking to Hillary or Ben, then, of course, it's an immediate stimulus for some sort of repartee. That happens all the time. Is Hillary your your wife? Yes, Hil- Hillary is oh, okay. my wife and, and also a te- technical advisor. Without her, I would not be talking to you now. Okay, okay. <laughs> and Ben, what about you? Is Shakespeare like a practice like yoga or meditation for you every day? I think, you know, um, just like Dad says, rather than come to it like one might do to a a yoga class or a a meditation mat, I find that that as I walk through life and, and think something or feel something, drifting through my consciousness comes a... I wouldn't say perfect, but a very articulate and eloquent way of expressing that which I'm experiencing. And, uh, and yeah, more often than not, it's, uh, it's under the hand and name of, of this guy Shakespeare. 
Well, I, I imagined that one or both of you might have some kind of practice and that that's what gave you the idea for the book. But, but what did give you the idea for the book and who got the idea originally? David. Well, it was, in fact, Ben's idea. I mean, it could have been mine. I wish it had been mine. Uh, and it very quickly did become both of us's very, very quickly. Because what you do, you see, when you get an idea like this, is you want to test it out as quickly as possible, just to see if it's got legs. And so the very first thing we did was each of us quite separately went through the entire canon, all the plays and all the poems, and if you've done that, you know how long it takes. But with the specific question in our minds, what is there in this amazing body of work that speaks to us in this everyday kind of way? We're all used to the very famous quotations of the, you know, is this a dagger that I see before me type, but that's not so every day. I mean, perhaps there are some listeners to this podcast who do see daggers every day, I don't know. But, uh, you know, it, it isn't so immediately relevant to our everyday concerns. So we spent quite a lot of time, each of us individually, going through and pulling out as many of these absolutely down-to-earth, everyday relevant extracts. And the extraordinary thing was that, you know, Ben was absolutely right. He, he said, we'll find thousands. I said, no, Ben, we'll find a few hundred at most. Well, at the end of the day, how was it, Ben? How many did we find at the end? 5,000, was it? I think that's the count that you, uh, you got to in the end, yeah. And what made you um, want to do this? What, where'd the idea come from? Well, uh, you know, tea time uh, at the Crystals, is, as Dad says, it, it was often filled with with Shakespeare. Tea time, you're and, sitting there uh, drinking tea and, and talking and about... And throwing what? Shakespeare back and forth at each other. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I remember when we first did Shakespeare's words uh, back in the early noughties, I read The Rape of Lucrece for the first time. And uh, not a, a, a piece of Shakespeare that many people are familiar with. Um, a very horrible tale, but filled with these what I would call uh, bon mots, these little uh, memorable phrases that uh, that stick with you. And uh, I've still got the little piece of paper, the little post-it note that I, I wrote down. It easeth some, though none it ever cured, to think one's dollar others have endured. Dollar meaning uh, pain. It, it, the quote essentially means misery loves company. And that's been on my noteboard ever since. And there was a collection of uh, the Tao Te Ching uh, that uh, I'd fallen in love with too. Oh, I love and, that too. Right? Yeah. And, you know, you've got a hundred or so uh, lessons or something in that, uh, however you want to, to call them, and, and to read, a bit like the sonnets, you know, to read them from one through 154, you, you probably won't get to the one of the best ones. You, you probably won't get as far as 18 because the first 17 can be a bit dull. Uh, <laughs> but if you flip around them, if you flick through it like a coffee book, like like I found my way through, to the Tao um, and and land on one that resonates with you today, um, then then you might start to explore further. And so the idea with this book was really to make bite-sized, manageable chunks that not, not only could be could have been perhaps written yesterday, but could be small enough or accessible enough or resonate enough that, uh, that you might feel comfortable enough to say it out loud or, or even to memorize it. And if, even if you don't, that you could flip around until you find one that, that does resonate with you. 
And that's the thing. The 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 Dow book it, it was that for me a springboard, and I imagine this book is a springboard for people for more Shakespeare reading. But how do you think about, or how did you think about the seasons and the the themes? You know, what makes for for instance an October Shakespeare quote? We do very much hope that the book is a a springboard, um, either to uh, that that each quote each day at the bottom has a, a stamp from from the source. Uh, material, whether that's a play or a poem, and uh, a little bit of context. And then at the back of the book, uh, an index, uh, a line index, a line reference, uh, so that you can find out more if you are intrigued by it. But um, rather oh, singularly... That, that, that's, the, that's the best bit, Ben. That's the best bit. Is the index yeah, is yeah, the yeah, best. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that did the indexes. Um, but uh, rather, the, it was quite controversial to begin with, um, this is one of the first books of Shakespeare quotes that doesn't have an act, scene, and line reference immediately after the quote because we wanted the quotes to live by themselves. Indeed, some of the quotes have no commentary at all. We very much wanted there to be white space to leave uh, the reader with their own space to interpret whatever they felt it might mean. And But indeed, that they can just... Um, live off of what's there rather than feel that they need to understand what a line reference is or what Hamlet's about in order to to access it. That's, in terms also, of the actual... that's very interesting about the book, really, because you do include commentary on many of the quotes. How did you approach that commentary? Did you approach them as standalone thoughts? Once, once we had these 5,000 uh, lines or so, um, Dad went through them and whittled out bunch that he felt wouldn't sit very well uh, in the book. And then I went through all of that and shuffled what we had left into loose themes. And um, then came the biggest jigsaw puzzle I think I've, I've ever done. Um, having established that we had a dozen or so themes, actually it was about 16 or so, we were sitting at the kitchen table. And, and, and actually, Dad, I think it was, it was your thought that, that why don't we map the book across um, themes. And so January became some of the best quotes that we had. February's love and loss, uh, love and laughter, sorry. Um, March is, is a look into grief and then hope. Um, April's nature, like you said, Dad. Um, June, because it's a hot month in the Northern Hemisphere for insults and arguments and fights and politics in July, back to work and, and money and projects in September. Um, October's the month of the Day of the Dead, so let's look at life and death. And and so we had this kind of super narrative arc over the course of the year. And then over the course of each month, there would be an arc, as I say, from love to laughter or from grief to hope or from fights to insults or something like that. And then over the course of each page spread as well, um, hope, you know, we tried to juxtapose um, the, the thoughts or, or have them resonate with each other so that um, there'd be a little journey to be found if, if people didn't want to read the book every day or, or, or wanted to read it in, in, in a different uh, number of settings. So um, the part of my own biggest passion, and, and I know Dad shares, shares it too, is that there's this idea that Shakespeare is difficult. And I think it's it's partly from the way that it's taught on the on the page predominantly rather than on the stage. And and we're taught we teach our, our next generations how to pass exams with these works rather than how to play with them. And uh, and after all, uh, it is an, an earlier version of our 
spoken English, and it's written in poetry. And, and there's lots of, of folk that don't feel that there's any space in their life for, for art, let alone the types of art like poetry or drama or theatre. So this, this idea that Shakespeare is difficult, we really, in lots of different ways with our, in our work together, have been trying to um, embrace that challenge and, and battle with that idea. And, and we both agreed, although we did have to tussle over it for quite a while, that these standalone quotes were in some respects the most important, that whilst we have plenty to say, either linguistically or dramatically, about, about what the quotes might mean, there are tons of books out there with reams of content about picking apart every single syllable, full stop and exclamation point or lack thereof of Shakespeare. So, so how about a book that, that offers that too? Um, and we get very specific on some things as well, but also how about offer that space? Well, I, I like how you gently bring Shakespeare into the modern day. For instance, in your introduction, you, you say about Shakespeare's use of the word man that it was, of course, normal in his very gendered time, but you encourage people to read human in its stead. It made me think that must have been a conversation that, that you two had together or maybe with your editor. Yeah, we, we do that quite a lot, don't we? Um, I mean, that's a perfect example of the kind of uh, discussion that we would routinely have as we were editing our entries together. The, uh, the gender issue is pretty important, and it is notable that every time Shakespeare uses the word man or men or something like that, or he or his, um, that we generalize it. I mean, when Shakespeare says he is doing something and it's a general point, then we recommend to the reader or to the listener of the audiobook that they replace that he or his by any pronoun they care to, to use, uh, and also proper names. You know, when we talk about Horatio, uh, the philosophy point, you know, in more life than your philosophy, Horatio, well, replace Horatio by some other name, one that will make sense to you in your home environment and so on. So we do recommend that these quotes, in order to make them relevant to uh, the individual user in that person's everyday life, that they are prepared to play with them. We think Shakespeare would have loved this. Uh, yeah, play that you with bring yourself to the text. You bring yourself to Shakespeare. Exactly. Right. There's a combination just to pick apart does use of relevance there because that's such a big question with Shakespeare we were really reaching towards inclusivity and playfulness that Shakespeare can be a starting point that we can break the works out of the the glass that we've so many people tried to protect him in for the last 100 150 years and be rough with him well speaking to that though were there were there quotes that you considered and then tossed because they you couldn't get them to quite meet your standard for, for reaching for inclusivity? Or things that you at first overlooked but then reconsidered and thought they did? Only about 4,000. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there were lots of those. Lots Can you of those. give us an example? I, I think a, a, anything that was a little bit too specific in the context of his time where you'd have to have an awful lot of cultural background in order to understand what the quote was about, we tended to move away from those. It would, they would require too much explanation. 
you know, stuff from the history plays, for instance, that had a lot to do with local local politics or methods of fighting and all the rest of it, which sort of intruded into the general point that was being made. We kept away from those. And insofar as there's a difference between Ben and me in our two professionalisms, one of my jobs was to check that out, really, uh, to go through the various quotations and see to what extent the various words were difficult in that way, needed some sort of explanation. One of the things any reader of this book will notice is that there isn't that much linguistic explanation in it. And the reason is very obvious. Ben earlier on said that people think that Shakespeare is difficult, that there are lots of words in Shakespeare that are difficult. Well, when you add them up, you don't find that many of the uh, million or less words there are in the canon. Only 5% of those words are different in meaning or use from those that we have in the present day. This is early modern English. It is not Middle English or Old English or something. And the vast majority of the quotes don't need any linguistic input. But then, every now and again, they do. That was my specific role, I think, in, in this particular book. And I was surprised to find that... I didn't have to do that much, actually. Most that's why so many of the quotes do stand alone. Right. I joked earlier about the the four thousand. Of course, you know, of that four thousand that we didn't that we found, there weren't that many that I suppose closed the door of inclusivity. But of the four thousand or so that were left over, I would say, God, I don't know what do you think, Dad, but at least a thousand of them could have quite easily been in the book. We, we had to cut the wheat from the wheat, let alone the wheat from the chaff. There was so, so many. How, how on earth he was so um, good. And of course, it wasn't just him. It was all of his actors too that, that, that manifested these, these great writings. But uh, um, he, had, he, had, he was all right at it, I suppose. The, uh, the, a rare one that needed some, a little bit of historic context that I appreciated was, uh, look, he's winding up the watch of his wit. Mm-hmm. By and by it will strike. And you point out that uh, you remind us how new this is, the image of a winding watch. It's easy not to pick up on that. You know, yes, timepieces had just come into use towards the end of the 16th century. So it's the equivalent, I guess, of mentioning like a VR headset or something. Yeah, that's, that's a very good example of uh, where it is important to put some cultural awareness into the, into the commentary. But... I guess on the whole, perhaps only maybe 10, 15, maybe 20% of the things in the book are like that. For the most part, uh, the, uh, the the quotes could really stand alone with very little commentary indeed. Yeah, and, and now, now we can just kind of um, blitz around your book a little bit because I'm sure some of these are your favorites. I, I always loved on February 28th, though I am not naturally honest, I am sometimes by chance. <laughs> um, I imagine that might have been one of your favorites. Is that why you chose it? Yes, this is Autolycus, isn't it, in the, uh, in the Winter's Tale. Uh, you know, you know th- that's the kind of quote where you th- might think, oh, I, could, oh, I won't ever be using that. 
oh, on the contrary, you know, one suddenly finds oneself in a situation where we're not talking about a serious crime or anything like that. Uh, we're just talking about a little, uh, a, a little piece of pretense or a little white lie or something of that kind, and somebody uh, catches us out or we say something in a in, in a way that is not typical of the way we normally talk and then that quote drops into the conversation very, very naturally. Oh, now for real, do you quote Shakespeare in everyday life? I mean, full full disclosure, I have such a terrible memory, I always get them wrong. So, And also it feels pretentious to me, so I don't. But, but do you, outside of tea time with Ben? Oh, oh yes, and, uh, oh, way too oh, much. all the time. Way too much. Yeah. Way too much. <laughs> <laughs> But, but notice, it doesn't have to be accurate. It doesn't have to be an exact quote. This is what people sometimes think. If I quote Shakespeare, I must get him exactly right. Well, we know from the various editions and versions of Shakespeare that there was an awful lot of revision that went on in his time. And it's perfectly normal. I mean, the actors of his time, uh, with the best will of the world, uh, will in the world, uh, wouldn't uh, necessarily have been able Terrible. to get all his lines exactly right. And it doesn't matter in a sense that somebody, not misquotes, but remembers as much of the quote as is necessary in order to make the point in their everyday everyday chat. So Ben and I would certainly often be exchanging quotes, but they wouldn't necessarily be the exact replica of what's in our book or in the first folio. In terms of the quotes that, that we throw back and forth to each other, sometimes it catches us off guard. There's a lovely one from uh, Henry VIII, another play that, that not many people uh, might think can be quoted. Uh, the, the line goes, nature does require her times of preservation, um, which is a lovely, uh, a lovely line about, about the world and the natural world. It was a, quite a surprise to me when I asked Dad if he wanted a glass of wine whilst we were reaching the end of uh, editing the book. And he looked up at me and said, David does require his time of preservation and <laughs> accepted the glass of wine. So, you know, it's uh, it, it's always surprising one, uh, the degrees to which you can, you can play with these works, that they're ready to be played with. There's nothing bad will happen if we muck about with them and if we, if we uh, adapt them nothing to good, our Nothing day. good or bad, but, but thinking makes it so. Well done, Dad. absolutely. <laughs> this is a real window into your family life. Um, <laughs> oh, my goodness, Barbara, you want a window into the family life? Listen, we were um, writing the book. This, this actually happened. We were together in Wales uh, where it rains a lot. And uh, my mother was looking up the, the forecast because we were going to go out that afternoon or later on in the evening. And uh, she says, oh, it's going to rain later. And I heard her from the other room. And so I, I lifted my voice and said, it shall be rain tonight. And in the other room, two rooms away, <laughs> Dad calls, let it come down. <laughs> <laughs> from Macbeth, and my mum screams at us both, get out of the house, the pair of you. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, were there quotes, though, that you came to and found very new or, or found new or a very different meaning in them uh, when you were considering them for the book? I, uh, I There's one I always hail to because I loved it so much. One of my favourites is... Um, is Two noble kinsmen, and we we open each month with with a quote that sort of sets the tone for the month. And uh, October being the month of life, essentially, it starts with birth and then love and then marriage and and then the some of Shakespeare's quotes on death as well before 
the spookier ones for Halloween. And uh, there's there's a lovely interchange between Arcite or Arcite, however you'd like to say his name, and Palamon, when they're prisoners in Athens. And uh, this is a, a line of Arcite's about about their friendship. And um, but out of context and and by itself, for me, it's it became a line about about us all really on on this planet and and how it, we are joined. We are we are together in in. We are unified by our humanity. It goes like this. Here, being thus together, we are an endless mind to one another. We are one another's wife, ever begetting new births of love. We are father, friends, acquaintance. We are, in one another, families. I am your heir and you are mine. This place is our inheritance. No hard oppressor dare take this from us. Here, with a little patience, we shall live long and loving. And I just thought, wow, that's, you know, that, that's entirely about their friendship. But taking it out of context, that, that's everything. Oh, that's lovely. Now, you give um, helpful hints to remembering quotes. Can you share some with us? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, a little context here. My uh, Shakespeare Theatre companies have been exploring for the last 10 years the practice of uh, a, a modern uh, adaptation of Elizabethan or Jacobean rehearsal practice where they only had two or three days to, to raise their shows. And one of the first questions that we get asked is, is how, if you do have that limited amount of time, how do you possibly remember the lines? Can you, how can you possibly learn all of Hamlet? Hamlet's part anyway, in a day or less than a day. And, uh, and I know this to be true because we've, we've put it into practice successfully uh, enough times around the world now to know uh, that it would have been easy for Shakespeare's actors. They were doing a different play every day of the, of, of the week, Monday to Saturday, and um, famously said to have had up to 40 plays in their head at any one time. Their memories would have been very muscular. And, and like any muscle, if you train it and hone it, it will get stronger. So you may not be able to do a, a pull-up today, but if you keep practicing at it, you'll be able to do two eventually, and then four and five and ten. It's the same with the memory. And, uh, and as part of the reason why we, we start the book with, with shorter quotes, and over the course of the book, there are, there are longer ones for, for hopefully memories that, that get stronger. And one of the things that you can do is write it out into your own hand. We know that Shakespeare's actors would have had to copy out their own parts in their own hand, and that was partly practical because handwriting wasn't necessarily uh, easily uh, legible for others if it wasn't your own. But also, uh, if, you, if you sort of imagine you're, you're copying something out, you're sucking those words into your short-term memory there. And if you were to come back to that line in uh, five minutes or 10 minutes, I'd pretty much guarantee it won't be there. But if you leave it alone for a day, if you come back to it the next morning, perhaps, or even the day after, you might be surprised that it's, it's sunk in from your, from your short-term memory and, and into your longer-term memory. Of course, after all, these lines were written by Shakespeare for a group of actors that he knew didn't have much time, but did have or at least some of the more experienced ones, had quite muscular memories. He was also writing these lines for, for the younger apprentices that whose memories mightn't have been so strong yet. But the tips that we give are very much based on, 
the techniques that we've learned help with uh, an Elizabethan-style quick read. So we, we like to think that they're, they're Shakespearean tips as well as, as modern ones. And why does your acting troupe, the Shakespeare Ensemble, do this? I mean, what are the benefits of, of doing things uh, like putting up two plays a week the way Shakespeare did, doing things on such short notice or of short duration? What, what does it illuminate about the plays or what does it do for you as actors? Well, it's certainly a lot of fun. They're just for starters, but but um, that's enough. But that's, that's, well, it, it's it's half a good reason. The other half of the reason is um, uh, you could ask the same question about the Shakespeare's Globe Theatre or the Shakespeare North Playhouse, sure. uh, the new uh, original practice space I'm an associate artist of in in Merseyside or the Blackfriars. Why do we uh, explore putting actors into? Uh, costume that is as close as we can make it from 400 years ago or the fighting style or the dance style. Um, and what we've learned from these so-called uh, quick raises is that it brings about a freshness and a dynamism that uh, and a uniqueness in playing. Mike Alfreds wrote a book called Different Every Night. And I think that it's not just in schools and in universities that we've lost sight of these things as being plays rather than reads. I think it's in production too, that um, the standard rehearsal time for a professional production of Shakespeare can be anything from six to 10 weeks. That a lot of energy, a bit like a modern musical, is spent making very careful choreography look new, look fresh, uh, look improvised. And because we know that Shakespeare's actors didn't have very much time to rehearse. In fact, they probably only had enough time to rehearse the dances and the fights, the complicated bits that are either dangerous or, 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 or need to be too pretty to, to risk improvising. And because they were performing in the same sort of space with the same group of folk, that offers them a wonderful opportunity to play to play with each other, to play with the space, to play with these words, and for each performance to be completely... Spontaneous. And spontaneous. And that is the process that was written into the DNA of these works. So every time we do it, and we've done it all over the world now in, in lots of different ways, every time slightly differently, and all I can... It's hard for me to say because I'm usually inside of the process, but the response response from the audience has been universally, and indeed, even when we performed in English or in original pronunciation to audiences that don't speak English, the response has been really quite overwhelming, that we're tapping into a, an energy and a performance style that feels, well, like what it is, a modern adaptation of something that we're gauging it was like 400 years ago. We'll never know uh, the degrees of authenticity. But of course, um, with any modern original practice exploration, you don't want authenticity. When you go to Shakespeare's Globe, you don't want to be ankle deep in excrement and mud and blood from the bear baiting, and you don't want the building to burn down. So there's fire sprinklers. And, um, you know, in this modern world, we want as diverse a range of company as possible. So we don't want it to be all male either. But what we do want and what is so far away from so many people's experience of Shakespeare in school, what we do want is for the, the two hours traffic to be visceral and exciting and emotionally engaging and demanding and, and as you say, Barbara, spontaneous. Yeah. Oh, I do enjoy listening to Ben when he goes on, on, 
on this uh, particular topic. His use of the term exciting is so exactly right for the actors. And I had a personal experience of this once uh, when he was doing uh, Henry V at uh, Shakespeare's Globe a few years ago in original pronunciation. Uh, and all the actors had their cue parts. And you might think, well, in, in this day and age, uh, everybody knows that play. Uh, so what relevance for the cue parts uh, approach? Well, for some reason best known to him, he cast me as Flewellyn, probably because I could do a good Welsh accent. And uh, there's a point after the Battle of Agincourt when uh, Flewellyn comes in and Henry is standing there and he talks to Flewellyn uh, and Flewellyn has to give a speech which begins, your grandfather. Now, Every time I've heard that play, um, it's that said, Henry is interested in what Flewellyn has to say, and it's a kind of serious little bit of dialogue. Well, Ben was playing Henry, I was playing Flewellyn. I had my part. I'd never rehearsed it with him before. I had no idea how he was going to react to my beginning of this speech oh fun so i start my line <laughs> and of course and, and of course sorry just to jump in having only my part all i have is that is the cue words of when to speak next i have no idea how long that speech is at all yeah. <laughs> That's right. I, I can i can imagine what's coming but yeah so i i start my speech thinking that henry is going to listen intently to this and praise me for it <laughs> and ben sort of looks at me and throws his head up in the air and thinks oh god flots flew ellen again not he's going to go on about this no 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 <laughs> kind of demeanor. got a war on here you know <laughs> we've got some things to do that was a busy so man, that immediately it? That immediately threw me uh, in the sense that I no longer know quite how to say these lines. And that was the sort of excitement. You've got to say the lines and you now you've got to react to this reaction uh, in a way that makes sense. And the next night, it might have been completely different, as he said. You've got now, to play together. Mm. <laughs> it was great fun. And it is exciting. This is a sort of electricity about the situation when no actor knows exactly how the other actor is going to react to them at any given moment. Well, you too. So much fun to talk with you. And thank you so much for the springboards. <laughs> right back them. at you, Barbara. Thank you so much, Barbara. It's lovely to talk to you. That was David and Ben Crystal interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Their new book, Everyday Shakespeare, Lines for Life, is out now from Chambers Books. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs, Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice to help others find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. Our building in Washington, D.C. has been under construction for the past three years, but we're looking forward to fully reopening in 2024. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I am Folger Director Michael Whitmore.